Welcome to the Settle Cane Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith, broadcasting from the Aorta of America, beautiful festival city, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where we pump out reason and pierce through the propaganda. Here we go. Today is Sunday, May 21st, 2023. And it is a mostly sunny day with 63 degrees Fahrenheit here in the Aorta of America with a 100% chance of psychological manipulation expected from your mainstream media. If this is your first time with the Subtle Cane Podcast, thank you for gracing us with your virtual presence. If you're a returning listener, thank you for your continued support. It is much appreciated. Today we have a special guest, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, documentarian, voluntarist, and open-source journalism extraordinaire, joins us to discuss his recent series of articles, Descent into Madness. Psychology is a fascinating field of study in which we've learned much that has assisted us in understanding the complexities of the human mind, and it should surprise no one that what can be used for good, well, can also be used for evil. In his series, Descent into Madness, James shares some cautionary tales of political dissidents being labeled as mentally ill, and he also poses some important questions about how we should respond to tyranny. Let's jump into episode 51 of the Subtle Cane podcast, interview with James Corbett, Descent into Madness. Mr. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thank you again for coming back to the Subtle Cane Podcast. I, I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about your uh, series of articles, Descent into Madness. How are you doing today? I am doing A-OK, and thank you for having me back on and to talk about this incredibly important subject. I'm, I'm glad people are interested in it. Yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about as, a, as I was reading through these articles is uh, I, w- I wonder what actually inspired you to write them. I mean, it's something that I think a lot of us in this, uh, I don't know, environment or, or this space uh, think about because it, it is something that's kind of cursory. It's out there, you know, but what, what inspired you specifically to take the time to sit down and write these uh, four articles? Well, there was nothing that prompted me at this particular moment to do to do this, but this is an idea that I've had for a number of years now. In fact, I've wanted to put some, and I, I think I've attempted in some small way to put articles like this together in, in smaller fashion in the past, and specifically addressing, for example, the conspiracy theorist slur, which is often pathologized into, you must be crazy if you do not believe what the mainstream media is telling you. And so I, I've always felt that there is a much more compelling argument to be made that, in fact, the gaslighting of the mainstream media is an example of a, a particular type of psychopathy that I think is being manifested in the upper reaches of power. But um, but that is a that's a big concept to articulate. And so I knew I couldn't do it in a small or um, a piecemeal fashion. It had to be done in some sort of thoroughgoing manner. And I suppose preparatory to some more documentary style treatment of the subject. This is essentially maybe the script for a a potential documentary at any rate. So I I wrote it for the newsletter over the course of a few weeks, and it draws on things that I've been thinking about, talking about, writing about, and uh, collecting information on for, I would say, at least a decade, maybe more at this point. Yeah. Is that something that 
that you are potentially considering is doing a documentary? As people may have noticed recently, I've taken a couple of my longer um, editorials for the newsletter and made them into a visual podcast. And I I suspect that will be something that I'll be doing in the future, because in the past couple of years specifically, I have really um, I, I don't think people <laughs> understand or appreciate. I spend a lot of time on the editorials that I do on the weekends, and <laughs> I think a lot of people uh, don't even know they exist. So <laughs> I would like more people to be aware of them. So I will. I, I very much imagine that this uh, editorial series will be made into a visual podcast at some point. All right. Well, we will specifically have uh, links in the show notes um, to this and, and other articles that you write because. Uh, yeah, that that does take a lot of time and effort, and there's a lot of good information. It's just not that it takes time and effort, but it, it's good information. And this is a topic that's actually um, particularly intriguing to me as a psych nurse that that works with um, people that are incarcerated with uh, severe mental illness. So this is <laughs> particularly because I can I can visualize what it would be like to be on the other end of uh, the bars, so to speak. Mm. So um, there was a, a Dr. Walk, Walter Reich, and, and this was a point that you made that I thought was very intriguing and also um, just glaringly obvious uh, obvious in, in the retrospect. After reading it, I was like, well, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that it, the quote was, the experience of Soviet psychiatry had a lot to teach. Uh, and... <laughs> Thinking now and, and looking into it a little more myself, including an article by Robert Van Voren uh, from on the uh, NIH Library of Medicine, the the specific perspective of the West seems to be that psychiatry is extremely dangerous as long as it's not us that's practicing it. Do you want to um, flesh that out a little bit for us? Absolutely. So I don't know a lot about the details of Dr. Walter Reich's career, but I did, of course, come across his 1983 article in The New York Times on the world of Soviet psychiatry, which I think is notable for the fact that it's a it's a pretty monumental 6000 word article. This was not some little thing that he wrote for The New York Times back page or something. This was a major piece. And I think it does a fairly reasonable job of doing what it intends to do, which is to outline the absolute ridiculous state of the Soviet use of psychology as a tool of political oppression. And I think that should be fairly well known as a sort of cautionary tale in the West at this point because of decades of, uh, well, information like that, which Dr. Reich provides. So famously or infamously, uh, the Soviet psychiatric system even invented a diagnosis sluggish schizophrenia, which it routinely employed against um, political dissidents of various sorts in order to lock them away um, for the crime, essentially, or the thought crime of disliking living under the Soviet state. And this was this was documented. This was a known phenomenon. It was called out. And this article that I'm citing in this in in my article is one example of that. And as I say, as far as it goes and looking at the ways the Soviets used psychiatry as a tool of political oppression, I think it's it makes a very convincing case. I do agree. I believe that the Soviets did it do exactly that. But of course, the blind eye is then turned, as you indicate there, towards, well, our side would never do this. Our side is the good side. We're the freedom. They're the evil empire. They're the ones that do this. And I, I liken it to any 
probably most um, war type of of propaganda um, throughout human history. But certainly we could look even into our own times of the various media coverage of the evils of the Chinese communists and the things that they do to repress their citizens that often turn out to be the exact same types of things that are being employed in the West against Western citizens. But let's never mention that. So I see that kind of dual nature of this propaganda. Not only does it, I think it's interesting because I don't think it's a lie. I think Dr. Reich's article was broadly true and correct, but it Mm -hmm. just goes to show that, um, well, if you only look at them versus us, then you'll only come to one side of understanding of this topic. Yeah, we always have a, 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 a blindness when it comes to our our own faults uh, as as people and um you know um as as countries or nations or groups of people or however you want to think about it i i uh, was doing a series uh, recently i'm i'm kind of in the middle of it i'm taking a taking a break so because you had agreed to come on and i think that um was worthy of of taking a little break there but on Jacques Ellul's book um propaganda one of the things that I, w- I was just uh, reading about that he was talking about is how propaganda itself, you know, it has that same sort of flaw where when it comes from us, it's information. When it comes from the enemy, then it's propaganda. And so those th- those two things are so uh, tied together, you know, this because essentially this is propaganda used with the framework of psychiatry. Uh, agreed. And perhaps that indicates maybe there's a failing in our our language that we're employing here, because if we cast our minds back 100 plus years, the the negative connotation that we have around the word propaganda didn't exist to the point where the British government in World War One, for example, could operate a bureau a war, a war propaganda bureau and openly call it propaganda. No one batted an eyelid at that because propaganda, of course, you're just presenting information in order to make make your case or to persuade people or to to get people to um, agree with you on something, of course, but maybe put in those terms. Well, almost any almost any statement that we make it in that framework is propaganda of a sort. So perhaps it's more fruitful to look at it that way. And in that case, if it was employed dispassionately in that way, then yes, of course, we could, without hesitation, say, well, of course, the Chinese communists have propaganda that they um, want their citizens to to believe. And so does the U.S. government and presumably every government on earth. And so uh, at any rate, if we if we kind of disarm the the term, I think we can look at it more rationally and understand that, yes, of course, propaganda is pervasive. And it's not necessarily an evil thing in and of itself. Of course, you're going to try to persuade people by marshalling evidence and what have you. Perhaps we could talk about more effective versus less effective propaganda in that case, if we wanted to really delve into it. Sure. And then there's also the uh, the, the more subversive and uh, manipulative versions that are don't take into account the well-being of, of the person. And I guess we'll probably cover that a little more. Um, as we as we get a little further through um, your series of articles here, um, I wanted to ask you about the DSM, Big Pharma and Big Psychopath and ask you, are you down with ODD? <laughs> uh, no, indeed, I don't believe I am. So uh, for people who don't know, DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which has been called the Bible 
of mental health professionals because it is used not just in the United States, although it is a product of the American Psychiatric Association, but it is used around the world as a type of guideline for classification and diagnoses of various mental health conditions. And in that regard, it is, of course, extremely influential in terms of what uh, what modes of thought, what modes of being are pathologized into some sort of psychological condition. So that, for example, um, I can't remember in which year, but before a certain year, um, homosexuality was cl classified as a mental disorder. Um, after that year, uh, and I believe it was in the 1970s, it was removed from the DSM and thus became not a mental disorder. But I, I think that goes to show to a certain extent, if nothing else, at least the arbitrariness of these classifications. Of course, something that is seen to be abnormal and, and uh, some sort of psychological condition that presumably needs some sort of treatment, uh, it can go from that into, well, no, that's just a regular state of being almost overnight and because of political influence, which again goes to show this is not exactly a precise scientific tool that is being employed here. And obviously, I, th I say obviously, given the work that I do and the research that I've done over the years, perhaps it is not as obvious to everyone, although I hope it is becoming more obvious. The the obvious uh, uh, potential for such a system is for that system to be taken over, corrupted, or at the very least influenced by powerful financial interests. And obviously, again, I say in this case, uh, the financial interest with the most to directly gain from this. Well, uh, uh, the most financial uh, gain is to be made for, by Big Pharma. Uh, the biggest gain in general, perhaps you might argue, would be from governments themselves that could then, as I say, diagnose their political dissidents as being psychiatrically um, afflicted in some way. But obviously, Big Pharma does make a a, a killing, if you want to put it in those terms, on mm. the psychiatric industry that has arisen around the DSM and its classification of potentially what might be seen as normal human behavior as abnormal and thus in need of treatment. And I think everyone can probably understand this in terms of the the over classification of ADHD and other pr childhood yeah. problems that can and perhaps in some cases I, I, I'm not I, I'm not claiming to weigh in on this in a scientific manner because I certainly am not in the field and I don't research it. But I think everyone understands that normal childhood behavior of normal healthy young boys, for example, who don't like to sit still and just sit there and be quiet and uh, listen to the teacher for eight hours a day. Uh, normal behavior that would act in ways that is not permitted in the schoolroom, for example, might then be classified as some sort of psychological condition. And then, of course, medicine, medication will be prescribed. And medication is the most gracious term you could apply to that, because, of course, there's a lot of research to show that the types of medication, Ritalin and others, that are overprescribed to um, children, young adults and others is not actually as beneficial as claimed by the big pharma industry. Um, but uh, again, in this particular article, I go through this isn't just some conspiracy theory. This is a documented fact that um, in 2012, there was a research team um, led by a University of Massachusetts Boston researcher who found that 69 percent 
of the task force members on the DSM-5 panel, that is the people who are coming up with the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual version 5, had mm. ties to Big Pharma. Um, specifically, 83% of the members of the panel working on mood disorders had pharmaceutical industrial ties, and every single member of the sleep disorder panel, 100% of them had ties to pharmaceutical companies that manufacture the med medications used to treat those disorders or to companies that service the pharmaceutical industry. So yes, do you think there is room for influence of this process? I certainly do. And I, uh, again, this isn't the main thrust of this article series, but at the very right. least, I think Big Pharma's influence in this entire process has to be taken into account to, at, at the very least, get people to realize that this is not some precise scientific tool that is being employed to precisely do, um, uh, put people in these completely scientific categories. No, this is an arbitrary process that invites that type of outside influence in order for various agendas, whether financial or otherwise, to be met. I would not be surprised to see uh, a DSM-6 on the horizon. DSM-5 was uh, released in 2013, and I was just uh, perusing through it uh, at work, and there was uh, unfortunate uh, Unfortunately for the modern uh, narrative, there there's still a uh, gender dysphoria listed as a as a diagnosis and and so and some subcategories to that. So I I wouldn't be surprised not just because of that, but be, because it's been since 2013, but also because there's been a lot of radical changes in how we want to look at things, and now we have a lot of this uh, talk about domestic terrorism that that's really um, even ramped up since then. So it, it wouldn't surprise me to see that they need to make some modifications and maybe add in some adult um, ODD. Um, I also Which reminds me, sorry, that I did not address ODD specifically for anyone out there who does not know. Oppositional defiant disorder was classified yes. in 1980 in the DSM-3 um, diagnostic manual as uh, well, uh, for an ODD diagnosis to pertain, a youngster needs to display four of the following eight symptoms for six months, often loses temper, often touchy or easily annoyed, often angry and resentful, often argues with authority figures, often actively defies or refuses to comply with requests from authority figures or with rules, often deliberately annoys others, often blames others for his or her mistakes or misbehavior, spitefulness or vindictiveness at least twice within the past six months, which mm. I, there's a couple of things to note about that. One of which is the, again, this is not some precise scientific thing, often angry and resentful. How how exactly does one measure that? Of course, that is going to be a judgment call on the behalf of the the, the person who is diagnosing this. And perhaps again, perhaps this could be reasonable if there is someone who is truly disruptive in all areas of their life to an, to a degree that is causing trouble for for everyone and is is uh, I think we can all relate to that that there's somebody who is clearly suffering from something that needs some sort of help perhaps pharmaceuticals might not be the help that they need but um, if it's truly disrupting their lives maybe they need help but unfortunately given the incredibly vague and arbitrary nature of this it is hard to imagine 
uh, a young a young person who couldn't potentially be diagnosed with ODD if the person diagnosing them wanted to do so. Oh, well, you you lost your temper a couple of times in the past six months. And, uh, oh, I, I, I see that you look a bit resentful when I say that. Therefore, uh, it, it, one can see how this type of extremely broad and arbitrary categorization can be can lead to false diagnoses for any number of reasons. Um, perhaps, again, just vindictiveness and spitefulness on behalf of the person diagnosing, perhaps. But at any rate, um, certainly if uh, doctors are in a position to get uh, kickbacks of of any sort from big pharma for referring patients and prescribing medicines. Again, this is this is the type of influence that we have to be thinking about with regards to this. So ODD is just one symptom, as it were, of the overall disease of the rot of this uh, fundamentally uh, steered and steerable DSM process. And I think we have to be aware of the potential at any rate um, for for malign influence in this overall process. It, it, it's a point well made. And when it comes to the the shifting of the Overton window, when it when it even comes to what those what what those kinds of things look like, arguing with the authority figures or refusing to comply or deliberately annoys others. Now, if you take into context the um, the way that social media and, and now mm. we have cyber bullying and we have all these um, different definitions, you know, not only are words violence, but silence is violence. And, and there's a there's there's a whole lot of um, vagary and, and wiggle room, um, as you stated. I, I don't think that can be uh, overstated. That that's an that's an extremely important point to make when we're talking about how this sort of it's insinuated in the different systems. This John Colonel John Rawlings Reese talks about how we have gotten it. We've been able to get ourselves into the teaching profession and the church, but he says that it's most difficult to get into law and medicine. I'm not so sure that that that's a very high bar anymore. As you were saying with the DSM, the getting into law and medicine seems to have happened, and and he was calling on people to quote imitate the totalitarians uh, in the field of psychiatry. That's right. For people who don't know John Rawlings Reese, he was a uh, colonel in the British military, but specifically a military psychiatrist who was not only the president of the Chisholm's World Federation of Mental Health, but also the chair of the Tavistock Institute from 1933 to 1947, which I trust some of your listenership will already know about. If not, I suggest that they start looking into the Tavistock Institute. But at any rate, yes, he did openly talk about the useful attack on a number of professions that the psychiatrists or is that military psychiatrists had launched in recent years. Uh, he was giving the talk in 1940. And as you say, talk, talked about how the easiest professions to infiltrate, essentially, were the teaching profession and the church. The most difficult law in medicine. But yes, as you say, I, I think that at this rate, uh, at this point, 80 years later, I think we can confidently say that there's been some significant inroads made there as well. But the, what was the point of this infiltration? If we are to infiltrate the professional and social activities of other people, I think we must imitate the totalitarians and organize some kind of fifth column activity. So uh, but don't worry, guys, it was all to make people healthy or something along those lines, or at least that's what was being said. Although I think 
uh, once we start getting into the uh, the uh, prospect of sneaking into and infiltrating organizations and professions in order to influence the way people think, one might wonder, one might reasonably wonder whether this is being done in the in the for the public good or whether this is something that we should be against. But at any rate, perhaps it's something the public should openly know about rather than have to read about 80 years later in the, the pages of, of some article on the Internet. Right. Why was this not openly talked about at the time? Well, of course, it is because the psychiatric weapon, essentially the weaponization of not only not uh, not only the uh, the diagnostic ability, uh, whoever controls the diagnoses, of course, gets to control dissent, allowable and non not allowable dissent, but also um, the ability to use uh, information and knowledge about the mind and how people come to their decisions and how they process information and what kinds of way, uh, methods of information uh, deployment is most effective on various populations. That type of specific psychiatric and psychological knowledge that can be gleaned um, can then be weaponized and used against populations at will, which presumably is the entire point of military psychiatrists and people with a specific information operations um, need to uh, to deploy this type of knowledge against the population, which is exactly what Reese was openly talking about, which, again, I think just on its face, the fact that it was being done in a subversive behind the scenes manner should at the very least, start ringing alarm bells for people who think that perhaps it would be better if they had some say and some choice in the ways that uh, information was being weaponized against them. Yeah, and there, there, there's a whole the way the military works with with that information. I it, even as a civil affairs uh, operations sergeant and working, I had to work alongside psychological operations, and they were very open about about what they do. This this historical um, background that you give in the first uh, several articles um, in this series does a great job of building building a, a framework or or a, or a foundation at least. And but you do bring us forward and say, okay, well, what is the point? Okay, there are people that are motivated to weaponize psychiatry against us, and you say, well, well, give us some examples of that. And so then you have your section Corona Insanity. And you talk about uh, Claire Swinney, Dr. Merrill Nass, and Dr. Thomas Binder, uh, and call them canaries in the coal mine. Um, do you want to share a little bit about that that whole that grouping of people and kind of what happened through the corona insanity? Absolutely. So uh, in that section of the article, I was discussing, as you say, people like Claire Swinney, who was a journalist in New Zealand, who I interviewed back, I believe it was 2009 when I talked to her about an incident that took place in 2006. So I would refer people back to that interview if they want to hear the, the full story of it. But essentially, um, Claire Swinney ultimately became a, a sort of political Prisoner? I, I don't know if prisoner is quite the right term. A psychiatric, a political psychiatric patient, shall we say, um, essentially for saying 9-11 was an inside job. That was ultimately what was um, cited as the reason that she was locked in psychiatric uh, uh, consultation and kept there for days and then released uh, with the provision that she take psychiatric medicine so um, mm. that she was then followed up on. They did. Um, make sure she was taking it. So which was a clear violation of the New Zealand's own Mental Health Act, uh, etc. But of course, these types of niceties and legal formalities are often not followed when uh, when 
they don't want to follow them. So um, that that was a harrowing story. And again, I would suggest people listen to Claire Swinney's own uh, account of that to to really get the full scope and context of it. Um, Dr. Meryl Nass, for people who may or may not know, um, she, for example, I talk to her every month on Children's Health Defense uh, TV, their video Mm -hmm. um, uh, series, uh, where every week she has a program where she's talking about various things related largely to COVID and and other such matters. But um, in 2021, I believe it was, uh, or was it 22? She had her medical license suspended. She was a practicing medical doctor with 42 years of medical experience who had her medical license suspended by the Board of Licensure in uh, in Maine, the state medical regulator, for refusing to tow the government line on approved COVID-19 treatments and all of that, the remdesivir and what have you, um, for simply suggesting and prescribing and um, and, and encouraging patients to use things like ivermectin. Um, not only did they strip her of her medical license, but again, she was forced to undergo a psychiatric evaluation, um, which again is quite telling. If you do not promote what we tell you to promote, if you do not toe the line, you may be psychologically deranged because of course, yeah. what possible normal reason could you have for coming to a different conclusion than the medical authorities? which again should send a chill down the spine of everyone. If they can do this to a uh, practicing doctor, 42 years of experience, well, they can probably do it to just about anyone. Um, But perhaps the most um, crystal clear encapsulation of this comes in the story of Dr. Thomas Binder, um, who was a private, again, a practicing medical uh, professional, 24 years of experience with his own private practice in Switzerland. Uh, mm-hmm. who in 2020 began talking uh, about the unscientific madness, the craziness, uh, I think demonstrable craziness of the the COVID era, talking about the unscientific basis of their restrictions and mandates, the, the flaws in the PCR tests, etc., on his personal website and on his social media. And someone or some people reported his blog, essentially, to the authorities in Switzerland, and he ended up being actually arrested by um, police. Uh, 60, that's six zero, 60 armed police officers, uh, including 20 officers with uh, Switzerland's anti-terrorism unit, showed up to arrest Dr. Thomas Binder, someone Obviously, I I don't think this needs to be stated, but let's state it with no criminal record of any sort, no history of violence, no history of threats of any sort, had never, ever had any sort of run in with law. They sent 60 police officers to arrest him. And when they realized they couldn't actually charge him with anything, they decided to, of course, send him for a mental health evaluation. And incredibly, I know this is difficult to believe, but incredibly, the doctor who was in charge of Binder's psychiatric evaluation actually diagnosed him with, quote unquote, corona insanity, which, of course, <laughs> is not an actual diagnosis. You will not find that in the DSM, although perhaps no. you will find it in DSM six. I guess we'll have to wait and see. But at any rate, at this moment, there is no such thing as corona insanity, whatever that means. But that was what Binder was actually diagnosed with. And then he was given the ultimatum. You can either remain in the psychiatric hospital for six weeks or you could go home on the condition that you take a a, a psychiatric medicine. So, uh, again, this is not some theoretical 
oh, maybe one day this could be weaponized. No, I think it is already being weaponized right now against anyone who speaks out against the well. And in this case, the biosecurity would be presumed health authorities. But it doesn't take much imagination to see how this could be applied to basically any challenge against any so-called self-described, self-declared authority. Um, it'll be interesting to see what this um, this next election cycle brings. Um, personally, not invested in in the process, uh, so to speak, and we'll talk about that a little bit too quick. But um, that the fallout, regardless of what happens, whatever kind of play is put on for us, regardless, I, I'm a little bit concerned in the states for what what the fallout looks like. Um, for people that actually uh, believe in free speech and personal liberty and, and autonomy. So one of the reasons why um, you, you brought those cases up, or I should say the reason why you brought those cases up, though, again, just to reiterate, saying those are canaries in the coal mine. And, and it is it is really uh, one of those uh, sentinel events when you see stuff like this going on, where, where it could be um, an indication of what, we have in our future it, it it's not it's not a stretch and the idea of making an example like 60 armed agents that's trying to send a signal that's not trying to um just arrest somebody that you're worried about maybe has you know a whole arsenal this is not the case this is just to make an example and to scare people into conformity and that, i think that psychological warfare right there is is pretty terrifying psychopaths about 4% of the population uh, is, is the statistic that we're given. Um, but what about the systemic effect of uh, a system that is in and of itself psychopathic in nature? Uh, what, do you have, what do you have to say about that? You, the projections of the psychopaths on top of the, the systemic um, sort of status psychopathy? Excellent question, because I think that gets to the heart of the issue. Just to bring people up to speed in case they are unaware, I think that it would behoove people out there to know something about psychopathy and sociopathy, which can be used as interrelated terms. Sometimes they are put in contradistinction as psychopaths are genetically, in terms of their brain wiring, are actually, um, well, at, at any rate, they respond differently than um, other people, shall we say, to stimulus, including uh, having absolutely zero empathy for other human beings. And sometimes the distinction is made that sociopaths are those who are not in the same way physically um, in terms of their brain biology wired in such a way, but that ultimately start to adopt some of those psychopathic traits. And if you want to know about those psychopathic traits, well, one place to turn would be the um, the Dr. Robert Hare checklist that has been um, uh, uh, put together. Uh, Dr. Hare is a psychiatrist from uh, Canada who has been one of the leading researchers on this in the past few decades and put together a checklist that is common, commonly used to diagnose um, psychopathy in a clinical setting. And you can see the types of things that are, are 
that are indicative of a potential psyche, uh, psycho, psychopathic diagnosis. Remorseless predators who use charm, intimidation, if necessary, impulsive and cold-blooded violence to attain their ends. They ruthlessly plow their way through life, leaving a broad tail of broken hearts, shattered expectations, and empty wallets. They have no feelings of guilt or remorse, no matter what they do. No limiting sense of concern for the well-being of strangers, friends, or even family members is some of the ways that some of the researchers who have written about this have described psychopaths. And again, you can take a look at the checklist. And as I do in the article, somewhat tongue in cheek, I, I, I do think there is a real sense to this. But of course, I'm not diagnosing any particular individual, nor would I presume to. But you could certainly see how some of the um, things on the checklist would apply to various political figures, egocentricity, grandiose sense of self-worth, uh, pathological lying and deception, conning, lack of sincerity, lack of remorse or guilt, etc. And I go through and show how some of these apply in certain very well-known instances. Um, but I think there are two ways of looking at this. One is that I, I think there is a reality to the idea that um, people of psychopathic character, whether literal psychopaths or sociopaths or however you want to make that distinction. At any rate, people of those exhibiting those traits do tend to get into positions of power, not only in the political hierarchy. I think this is also true in the corporate hierarchy or in probably in most hierarchical systems where there is a struggle for power and dominance. You will find, and I think it makes a certain amount of sense, you will find the people who are the most ruthless, who would sell their own grandma in order to make a buck or whatever the case may be. Um, those types of people will get ahead in the system simply because they are willing to do literally anything and lie with absolute uh, conviction and do whatever else is necessary up to and including, of course, murder, um, which I think is the public perception of psychopaths. So they're just serial killers. Well, of course, I would imagine most serial killers probably are psychopathic or sociopathic, but uh, not all psychopaths or sociopaths are serial killers. And I think that's an important distinction. But at any rate, um, I think people get the point that often we will find the people at the highest levels of political, financial, corporate um, power and wealth tend to be on the psychopathic side of the spectrum. And again, like so many other things, it is a spectrum rather than some hard and fast diagnosis that we can take some sort of litmus test and see where someone stands. Um, having said that, there are numerous studies that back this up, and I point to a few of them that talk about the prevalence of psychopathic uh, individuals in corporate positions, etc. Um, so there is that there, there's that layer of the problem that it, you well, pre presumably uh, just almost by I, I, I don't want to say a natural process, but a process that I think we can understand intuitively. The most cutthroat and ruthless people will get into positions of power. And that is a problem in and of itself, because, of course, everything that that brings along with it, the fact that, for example, if we want to go along with the idea that the commander in chief of the U.S. military, the president of the United States is the most powerful man in the world. Uh, obviously, I don't believe that's how power really works. But at any rate, even if we go along with that, then what does it mean if a psychopath gets into that position of power and thus has control over unimaginable um, military strength, let alone other types of strength. Um, that 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 is a problem in and of itself. But even more fundamentally, in a in a much more existential philosophical sense, the problem then becomes that not only do these people get into positions of power, but they then start to cultivate a system for uh, for identifying and bringing up through the ranks people who 
similarly are, again, either psychopathic or sociopathic or exhibit those tendencies or are willing at any rate to suspend any moral uh, qualms that they have in order to get ahead in that system. And we start to see the shaping of entire organizations, uh, whether corporations or political um, institutions, around the psychopathic uh, characteristics so that the the corporation, for example, starts to become, in a sense, if we if corporations are people, then they can be psychopathic people. And again, this has been pointed out um, a number of times, but perhaps most convincingly by the aforementioned Dr. Robert Hare. Again, one of the one of the leading researchers on this issue in the past few decades, who in 2003 was in a documentary called The Corporation, where he talked about the way you could diagnose um, the modern corporation as a, a, as a psychopath, essentially, by talking about egocentric and narcissistic tendencies, guilt-free deception and manipulation, willingness to commit crimes, um, utter lack of remorse for those crimes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think there is something there is something really profound to that, to identify not only the problem of the individual psychopaths and sociopaths who get into positions of power, but how entire systems and institutions can be molded around that character to, to create a system where ultimately it starts to turn everyone within that system, if not turn them into sociopaths, but at any rate, uh, promote those sociopaths or people who are willing to uh, suspend moral uh, qualms or to weed out those who absolutely will not compromise on their on their moral beliefs and mm. subtly and over a long period of time to, I think, shape the cover, the, the public consciousness and the public morality, essentially, into that psychopathic um, point of view. And I suspect that if you go back half a century, for example, and talked to someone living in that era about just generally, even if it's only lip service, about the types of morality that people were expected to project at any rate in uh, society 50 years ago versus the type of morality that people are are uh, uh, tend to talk about in uh, in 2023, I think you will find a marked difference that there has been a, a devolution in moral character and integrity over that time period. At, at any rate, again, whatever people actually believe or actually think in their heart of hearts, at any rate, what you were expected to show to the world, um, I think, has definitely changed over that 50 years and not necessarily for the better. And why why is that? I think there is a warping of society and societal and social morality that takes place as a result of these psychopaths getting into positions of power and then twisting the system to essentially create the system in their own image. Yeah, you do a great job of um, extrapolating and drawing comparisons to the Stanford prison experiment, the um, Milgram, Stanley Milgram's experiment with the shocks and Solomon Ash's conformity experiment with the different lines. I will um, I'll post some links because I think in light of this conversation and in your in in your articles, you do a good job as well of of drawing those comparisons. And, and that really kind of opens up um, some of the some of the thought patterns that that would help understand this concept on a, on a more. Um, well, like I said, extrapolated view so that you could look at, OK, this is a this is the way the government functions now. Look at this authority and how this authority is um, adhered to. Now, what happens if you get the bad leadership and, and leadership? People that fall under leadership, uh, 
conform themselves to the character of the leader. I've seen it over and over and over again in in the professional world, in the military, in family life. It it that's the way of things. So um, not it's it's not insignificant. There is good there is good though good news and that there's light at the end of the tunnel and that is the circuit breaker modeling disobedience and and I want to put a link in because I love that bystander effect video that you posted I don't know how long ago now with the dancer um you remember which one I'm talking about you, I you do must. indeed yes yes, yes. I love um, that video yeah I, it is a, such a powerful it, it's such a great video because as they say a picture tells a thousand words and in that case that video is essentially a lecture on everything I want to convey, but you actually get to see it taking place. So for people who haven't seen it, I won't over describe it. I will just say, go watch the video and you can watch how people can, um, in a sense, be influenced, use influence, but it can be used for good as well as evil. And um, that's something to think about. But ultimately, I think that's the underlying concept of the, the circuit breaker idea. And that's the part of the Milgram experiment that, when I first learned this, it blew me away because I had never heard this part about the experiment. Of course, most people know about the Milgram experiment and the uh, the whole setup of giving fake electric shocks to an actor, right. essentially, who's pretending to be in pain and and seeing if people will comply with the dictates of the the person running the study. Oh, you the experiment requires that you continue and the person must continue giving shocks up to the point where they think they are causing literal harm, perhaps even death to this person. And the shocking statistic um, that was that was the, the kind of takeaway and which has been talked about and repeated in various experiments um, and et cetera over the years is 65 percent of participants in the original study went up to the 450 volt shock level. What they the participants thought was a potentially lethal shock. They were 65 percent were willing to give that shock. And that's that's kind of the oh, my God, takeaway from this. But the thing that most people don't know is that this experiment wasn't just run once. It was run over and over and over and over under all sorts of different experimental circumstances. And uh, be, depending on the experimental circumstances, it could greatly affect the outcome of how many people were willing to go to the maximum of potentially lethal shock level. And um, for example, when the uh, test subject uh, could instruct someone else to deliver the shocks for them, they didn't have to actually push the button, flip the lever. Um, the compliance um, with the study went up to 92.5%. So almost everybody, as long as they can tell someone else to do it, will happily do so. Um, but when the test subject watched someone else do the experiment before them, and that person who was doing it before them refused to comply, did not go ahead and deliver the, uh, the higher shocks, at some point stopped the process and walked out, then the uh, compliance dropped to 10%. So then uh, you you have an almost complete elimination of compliance with the study. If if, the, if people have only seen just one person model the act of disobeying and not complying. And this, again, uh, is such a powerful idea, but it's not one that we have to take at faith at, at face value on just on faith. Uh, you can watch it through that very fun video that I uh, that you're referring to there about the bystander effect and about watching a movement essentially arise. But you can also see it in more, even more dramatic um, uh, uh, footage. Like, for example, I point to the the fall of Ceausescu in um, Romania in 1989 and how that happened. And essentially, 
the the real trigger point, there were protests and things that were going on in the country as communism was collapsing and the Soviet Union was beginning to fall apart. Um, but the real trigger point was a speech that uh, Ceausescu was giving that was like every other speech he ever delivered to his adoring, adoring, quote unquote, masses who were adoring because they were at the point of the gun of his brutal security, um, who would make sure that everyone was cheering at the appropriate times. But this particular day, for whatever particular reason, there the crowd was not going along and just simply applauding everything he said. They were chanting Timishwara, talking about a, a, a brutal crackdown on dissenters that had taken place in the country a few days before. And they were, um, and and you can watch in this video how physically shocked Ceausescu is that people are disobeying him. His wife steps in to try to say, listen, listen, he's trying to tell you, what are you guys doing? And he's, he's getting angry at his wife and the crowd continues to go on. He continues his speech. He finishes his speech, but um, the, the, he, him and his wife immediately try to flee the country. They are tracked down and within four days they're, they're dead. And this decades long brutal rule of a dictator is essentially toppled overnight because some people in the crowd started disobeying, openly disobeying, modeling that disobedience. So this is not some just theoretical idea. This is, I think this is something real. And obviously it's not always going to play out like that. It's not quite that dramatic usually, and we don't usually get to see it happening on camera. But I think the act of diso disobedience and the act of standing up and saying no, when modeled, especially when modeled in a way that people can see, is incredibly yeah. powerful and incredibly effective at getting other people who I think most people probably do understand and sense there is something deeply wrong that is happening in our world today. Things are going in a bad direction, but they do not see the the they do not see the the acts of disobedience. Those are not trumpeted. You will not see that taking place on the evening news. They will not talk about the acts of disobedience or highlight them. And specifically, I think because they know the real the real truth about that, that the Milgram experiment and what it really tells us about human psychology, because, for example, something that I've covered before back in, I want to say 2011, at any rate, uh, over a decade ago, there was a protest that was being planned at that time uh, against the TSA and specifically the the X-ray naked body scanning technology <laughs> that they had just then recently instituted um, for people flying uh, across the United States, into the United States, out of the United States. And there was a mass day, an opt-out day, where people en masse were going to opt out. And this was during the Thanksgiving rush. So obviously would have created massive disruption and gotten a lot of attention. And people would have definitely seen the effect of this disobedience, which is exactly why on precisely on opt-out day, the TSA shut down scanners all across the country and just waved people through. Just wave them through and no, no, we're not going to scan anyone today because they did not want people to see those acts of disobedience taking place. And I think yeah. that speaks powerfully to the to the incredible power of this idea, this uh, this idea of modeling disobedience. Um, I, I think that the the real the people in positions of power know just how uh deadly to their rule that that such an act can be. And that's why they do, they never want it to take place. They would even rather just shut down all the machinery of control until people back off and then they'll put it back into place. Civil disobedience works. And uh, one of the things that one of the most powerful things you can do is just speak up. And as um, Jacques Ellul says, propaganda ceases where simple dialogue begins. And I wanted to give you a, a chance to quick talk about the National Citizens Inquiry before you go. I know you're pressed for time. So 
one of the things that you're doing is speaking up and uh, testifying at the National Citizens Inquiry. Do you want to give a quick um, little information? I'm going to put a link in the show notes for people to go to that um, event virtually, and um, if not in t- at the time, uh, at least afterward. Yes, thank you for that. Yes, so um, the National Citizens Inquiry, for those who don't know, is a, uh, as it might indicate, as the title indicates, a a citizens-led inquiry that's taking place in Canada right now into the events of the COVID-19 and more specifically the Canadian government and health authorities' response to it. And it is holding a series of hearings. Now, uh, this was established by Preston Manning and others, and people of a certain Canadian vintage will know that that was the leader of the Reform Party back in the day. So, you know, I mean, there's some political pedigree to this, but it is not a uh, it's not an official hearing. It's certainly not government endorsed. It is not uh, it has no legal teeth to it or jurisdiction. Um, it is simply a series of hearings and testimony that is being put together of Ordinary, regular, everyday Canadians, as well as people in um, positions of uh, uh, scientists and and doctors and others who had direct experience of what was going on, giving their testimony. And a report is going to be compiled by the commissioners of this inquiry and um, submitted to the Canadian government for whatever that will be worth. At any rate, I think the hearings and the testimonies themselves are definitely worth watching for anyone who's interested in this subject. There's some really powerful testimony, um, sometimes very hard-hitting information, sometimes just deeply affecting personal testimony, and that's all up at nationalcitizensinquiry.ca. I have been invited to speak on Thursday, May 18th, and I believe I'm scheduled at this point to speak, uh, I was it 8.20 or 9.20 a.m.? At any rate, people can watch the hearing um, via the National Citizen Inquiry web- website. They're, they're live streaming the hearings themselves. So people can watch that. I'm going to be speaking specifically on the WHO and the preparation for the quote unquote next pandemic um, and specifically the the moves towards the creation of a global pandemic treaty and or the amendments to the international health regulations that uh, were last amended in 2005. Uh, that might be gobbledygook for some people in the audience who are not keeping track of the WHO and its machinations. But if it is, then I would hope you would check out my hearing where I hope I'll at least be able to introduce those ideas, the steps that are being taken right now towards creating some sort of new pandemic treaty or pandemic infrastructure for um, they want to unleash that on the world in May of 2024 and what we can do about it. So that will be the, the focus and thrust of my testimony. James, you're a you're a man of integrity, and I and I really appreciate you. Um, people uh, don't understand what the the reach is that you have, and in 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 contrast to the reach that the Subtle Cane podcast has, realistically, um, for you to take the time out of your day and and to talk to me and to and to have this conversation and to share your expertise and all, all these years of research and and open source journalism that you've done it, it it really is is humbling and and i sincerely appreciate it and i sincerely appreciate you and, and the effort that you take and uh, i don't even know how you put out all the material you put out but it is uh it's amazing i'm gonna have links in the show notes to your work and i thank you once again for coming on today um you are of course always welcome on the subtle team podcast thank you so much 
I appreciate that. And I'm not blowing smoke. I appreciate you and everyone else who is getting out there with information that you think is important and putting it out there. I think that is the way forward. Um, whether you agree with me or completely disagree or slightly agree or whatever the case may be, I just want more people to be involved in this. So I, I appreciate what you're doing. But speaking of putting things out, I, I got to go record some more stuff before I jet off halfway around the world to go speak at the Better Way Conference in June. So <laughs> I am a busy boy. Appreciate you. Have a great day. Thank you. There you go. The intransigent James Corbett. And what a great conversation that was. There are links in the show notes to the articles that we discussed, as well as some of the other sources that came up in the conversation. I'm also going to strongly encourage you to watch that bystander video that we talked about. Uh, Our actions and inactions do have consequences. And when we let fear of rejection or a, a compulsion to comply inhibit us from doing the right thing, it sends a message to those around us. Integrity is doing the right thing when no one is watching. And courage is doing the right thing even when they are and they disapprove, or it could cost you. I end with two quotes today. The first is from Jiddu Krishnamurti, which James shared in his articles. Quote, It is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. End quote. And the second from C.S. Lewis. Quote, When the whole world is running toward a cliff, he who runs in the opposite direction seems to have lost his mind. For all you listening, you are valued, you are loved, and you are worthy. God bless, and good night. Lack of fear as the world I love turns